0: Welcome to the Seek Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm Erin Falbo, your host for this season. Each week, we're sharing content that dives into the heart of the gospel, who God is, who we are, and what it means to live in relationship with Him. We're excited to walk with you as you encounter the Lord. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Um, it's uh, <laughs> Okay, A, doesn't that kind of sound like the beginning of the Avengers theme? So I was, like, so hoping, like, tomorrow night, last night I heard, you know, Paul and Chica, and I was like, I hope that on the second night they played it. The, its okay, I'm fine. Um, but actually, it's so intimidating to be able to be here, not just because of you all, but also Adam and Maria, how humbling is that? Just to see these people who are just giving of themselves, it's amazing. Also, humbling to go after Sister Bethany. Years ago, you guys, years ago— um, Sister was giving a talk on like on Tuesday on the night of Sikh, and I was giving a talk the next night. And as she was talking, I was thinking, oh shoot, I'm going tomorrow after her. And one of our students said, Father, I turned to my friend while Sister Bethany Madonna was giving her talk, and I said, Oh shoot, Father Mike has to go after her. <laughs> and that was a whole day later. Now it's like immediately after. I'm like, oh my gosh. Again, it's super humbling. What's also really humbling is just, I'm so Okay, I'm gonna get to the point of the talk first, but. I'm so humbled and honored to be able to just share some words with you all tonight. Especially, I know that um, our students at the University of Minnesota Duluth, the Bulldogs, I am so grateful for them because I know that uh, at events like this we don't get to see each other very often, and so they just—they're so generous. They just like get to share each other, get to share each other with the world. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really going to reflect on today is Matthew chapter 28 verse 17. So, if you want to dial that into your brains, Matthew chapter 8, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 28 verse 17. So. After everything Sister Bethany Madonna just talked about, right? After Jesus does all of his miracles. After Jesus uh, (laughs) raises the dead, right? After Jesus himself has been crucified, has resurrected from the dead. After the apostles have seen angels, like they've seen the glory of the angels saying, he's risen, he's no longer dead. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, Jesus says, go to Galilee and there you'll see me. So 28, verse 17 says, when they saw him. They worshiped, but some doubted. Like, what? That's crazy. That just blows my mind. Again, this is after everything. This is after Jesus has proven that he is who he says he is. Jesus has demonstrated that he is God. He is the Lord of life. He's the Lord of over-death. He can conquer death. He can forgive sins. All of these things are true, and they, it's not like they don't know it. It's not like, they, well, someone once told us that Jesus is the Lord. Like, they know that he's God. And they saw him and worshiped, but some doubted. You know, one of the things that is a consequence of what Sister Bethany Madonna told us all is this truth, and that truth is, Jesus is either of no importance or he is of absolute importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is relatively important because he's God. He has demonstrated that he is God, not kinda like your God or my God, but the God. So he is either the God, which means he's absolutely important, or he's not, which means he's of zero importance. The only thing he cannot be is relatively, relatively important. And here's the apostles, here's the disciples. They saw him and they worshiped, but some doubted. And I have to ask the question, like why? What is there to doubt? It's true. Like, he is who he says he is. What is there to doubt? I don't know. Next point. <laughs> no, I, I really, I don't know. I, because it maybe it's the case that they're doubting him. Maybe they're doubting who he is. Maybe they're doubting what he's done. I think it's something different. I think they know that he is who he says he is. But also I think that they know who they are. And they know that, okay, Jesus is God. But maybe they're doubting the next thing. Maybe they're doubting the next step. Maybe they're doubting their response. They worshiped, but they doubted. You know, I think that doubt can mean a few things. One of the things that it definitely means is it's the opposite of this one big word called faith. They worshiped, but they doubted. You know, to have faith, what is it to have faith? You know, C.S. Lewis, we've talked about him a lot tonight. C.S. Lewis, we'll talk about him two more times tonight. C.S. Lewis once said, he said, before I became a Christian, I was always puzzled by why Christians talked about faith as a virtue. He said, because if the only reason you believe anything is because it's true, the only reason we should believe anything is because it's true. And so if something is true, to say that you believe it is, (laughs) how is that the moral thing to do? How is that the right thing to do? It's like saying, I'm virtuous because I believe two plus two is four. Look at my morals. Like, that's not good. It's just smart. It's just being honest. So he's puzzled. Like, why would Christians say that faith is a virtue? If you believe Jesus is God, why is it a virtue to say that you believe Jesus is God? Why is that the good thing, not just the smart thing or the honest thing? And he says, basically, I think it's for the same reason as they worshiped but some doubted. Because there are consequences to belief. There are consequences to belief. I think you know by now that faith is not a feeling. I think you know by now that faith has to, if it's going to be real faith, it has to transcend feelings. Faith has to be more powerful than feelings. We think about even, we talk about the guy in the Old Testament, Abraham. We call him the father of our faith. Why? Because he really felt it, you know? Like, that's not why we call Abraham the father of faith. We call Abraham the father of our faith because God said, Abraham, leave your homeland and go to the promised land. And what did he do? Bible scholars? He did it. Thank you over there. (laughs) A for the day and the gold star. So we call Abraham the father of faith not because he was like, oh, yeah, I'm really feeling close to the Lord now. It's because God said, do this, and he did it. I mean, think about the people of Israel, when God set them free from slavery. What'd they do? They walked a certain direction because God told them to. They lived a certain way because God told them to. They worshipped a certain way because God told them to. They, didn't wor- they weren't stopping every three steps going like, well, wait, how am I feeling? How do I feel right now? Like, they didn't stop and ask that question. Why? Because they knew the one who had called them. This is the thing. Faith is not a feeling. If we believe something, we only believe it because it's true. Not just true for you, not just true for me, but true. The truth. And if Jesus is God, that means he's the God, not one of many. And if he's God, that means everything he says is true. If Jesus is God, that means everything he says is true. That's why faith is a virtue because there are times in your life and in my life when it would be really, really convenient if it wasn't true. see C.S. Lewis goes back, he talks about this, he says, he says I know, I, I know anas- how anesthesia works. I know I can trust the anesthesiologist. He says, but that doesn't mean I don't panic when he clamps that thing over my face and I start going under, maybe I'll suffocate. He says, he says, (laughs) you might know, he says, a young man might know that a pretty girl that he knows very well always tells lies, but when he sees her and he's like, oh gosh, I'm all Twitterpated, he's, I'm I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, he is, (laughs) sometimes he might say, oh, just this once, I'll tell her some deep, dark secret about myself, even though he knows the truth. And the same thing is true, he says it's about Christianity, he says, there will be a moment when there's bad news. There'll be a moment when you're in trouble or you're living among a lot of other people who do not believe it. University, anyone? And all at once, your emotions will rise up and carry out a blitz on your belief. Or, there will come a moment when you want, he says, when he wants a woman, or he wants to tell a lie, or he sees a chance of making money in some way that is not perfectly fair. In those moments, it would be very convenient for Christianity not to be true. And that's why faith is holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith is holding on to things, truths your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. Faith is not a feeling. It's, it's more like this. It's more like surrender. It's more like trust. It's more like this. It's, it, is, it is saying yes to God. That's what it is. It's a relationship. So we, I, I know that sometimes when I say like, "Oh, faith is a relationship," people are like, "Oh, yeah, I love that." Mm, are you sure you do? Because, <laughs> because it has to be a real relationship with a real God. I'm gonna say that again. If faith is gonna be real, it's a real relationship. Yes, saying yes to God, but it has to be a real relationship with a real God, not a God of my own invention and not my own version of God. If Jesus, in Jesus, God has fully revealed Himself. In Jesus, here's what God has said. God has said He's declared this. God has said this about you. He says, "I declare, I'm going to love you as you, as who I know you are." Sometimes we like to disqualify ourselves, like, "No, you can't love me as I am. You you only love the good version of me." And God says, "This, no, no. I declare this over you. I love you as you. I'm going to love you as you. But here's what I'm asking." I'm asking you to love me as me. Here's this call of Christianity. God declares, I'm going to love you as you. Not a different version of you, not a better version of you, not a holier version of you. I'm going to love you as you, and I'm going to ask you to love me as me. So how has God revealed himself? That's how he's calling you to love him. That's why faith is everything because it means a real relationship with a real God. Not a God, my own invention, not a, my own version of God. In fact, I came across these two different descriptions. They're from athletes and I don't, I'm not trying to throw athletes under the bus. I apologize, athletes. But one is from a football player, one's from a baseball player. One football player, he was, uh, his name is Norm Evans. He was a lineman for the Miami Dolphins. He's a Christian as well. He wrote a book about Jesus once. And this is what he said. He said, here's Norm's version of Jesus. He says, I guarantee you that Christ would be the toughest guy who ever played the game of football. If you were alive today, I would picture him as a six foot six inch, 260 pound defensive tackle who would always make the big plays and be hard to keep out of the backfield for offensive linemen like myself. That's Norm's version of Jesus. It's Normism. There's a man named Fritz Peterson, he played for the Yankees and uh, Here's Fritz's version of Jesus. He says, I firmly believe that if Jesus Christ was sliding into second base, he'd knock the second baseman into left field to break up the double play. He went on to say, he said, Christ, not, he might not throw a spitball, but he would play hard within the rules. Jesus wouldn't even be playing baseball. You guys, we all know this. <laughs> I used to have a debate with my friend, best friend in high school. He was a basketball player and I was a swimmer. And he was like, no, 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 of course Jesus would play basketball because he's always given up the rock. And I was like, of course Jesus would be a swimmer because he'd just run across the water and he'd win every race. (laughs) But that's, that's our own version. And again, Fritz, Norm, myself, we're not the first people to say this about Jesus. In fact, we we specialize. Our biggest temptation is like, okay, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want to have faith in Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is, so I'm going to have faith in him. Then we create our own version of Jesus. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You probably know this story. It's in the book of Exodus. Here's people of Israel. They've been set free from slavery. After 300 years of slavery, God has set them free. He led them, you know, remember all the 10 plagues, the Passover, the whole deal. He gets them to the Red Sea. Opens the waters. They walk through the waters. Moses says, hey, you guys, wait here. I'm going to go up to the top of Mount Sinai and get the commandments. This sounds familiar? Amen? Good. So, if doesn't, there's this thing, a podcast I know about. Um, So Moses goes up the mountain, and what happens? Here's the people of Israel who've just been set free from slavery, from certain death by the Lord God. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey, fashion for us a God that we can worship. I remember when I first read this story, I was like, you dirty dogs, like what the heck, are you kidding me? I always thought of this as an example of how quickly we turn away from the Lord. I always thought of it as, here's, here's Aaron who's making a whole nother God, that all the people of Israel who've just been set free from slavery, they've just been set free from the, through the Red Sea, that they said, you know what, we don't want him anymore, we want this new God. And then I started paying attention to what the Bible actually said. In Exodus chapter 32, the people of Israel don't say, we don't want you anymore, God. We want a new God. They make the golden calf. And they bow down before it and they say, this, O Israel, this is the God who saved you. They didn't think they were inventing a whole other God. They were just creating their own version of God. The God that approves all the things they approve of. A God that likes all the things they like. A God who loves all the things they love. A God who doesn't like the things they don't like. Think about that. If that's my version of God, who's made in the image of whom? If my God, if my Jesus loves all the things I love, if he likes all the things I like, if he hates all the things I hate, who's made in the image of whom? Even like when it comes to sense of humor, we sometimes think of Jesus as having a sense of humor. I would say, of course he did. I mean, the God who invented laughter, of course he has a sense of humor. But here's the thing, he doesn't have your sense of humor. I'm guarantee you that. Because you and I both laugh at Zoolander and at National Lampoon's Vacation and Dumb and Dumber and all those things. And worse than that. The reality, of course, if if I haven't been consoled by Jesus in the Gospels, I haven't been paying attention to him. If If I haven't been consoled by the God who declares his love for me, either I haven't been paying attention to him, or I've been paying more attention to my excuses. God, you couldn't possibly love me. You couldn't possibly want me. You couldn't possibly choose me. And, and if I haven't been convicted by Jesus in the Gospels. I haven't been paying attention. If I haven't been challenged by the Gospels, I haven't been paying attention. If I haven't been called to actually change the way I live and change the way I think, change what I love and what I don't love, then I haven't been paying attention to the Gospels or I've been making excuses and saying, no, 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 this is, in my case, it's okay. You know, St. Augustine, this, again, this is nothing new. I'm not trying to point fingers. This is what we've always done. St. Augustine, back in the fourth century, he said this. He said, if I accept what I like in the Gospels and reject what I don't like in the Gospels, it's not the Gospels I believe, it's myself. If you and I Accept what we like in the Gospels. We accept what we like in Jesus' teachings, but reject what we don't like in Jesus' teachings. It's not Jesus we believe in, it's ourselves. It's not Jesus we love, it's ourselves. You know, I think the largest Christian denomination in the world is also the smallest. It's called Meism. It's the largest because it's the most Christians are just like, I believe in my own version of Jesus. It's also the smallest because it's the one I particularly believe in. None of us all believe the same thing. We all have our own particular version of Jesus. It's a church of one. In fact, I know a man who's been emailing me a bunch of times, and he's always just challenging me on this this church teaching and that church teaching. And and I've noticed over the course of our correspondence that all of his critiques actually centered around three issues. And every one of those three issues... (laughs) was related to sexual morality. He had no problems with Jesus' calling to uh, forgive people, to serve the poor. He had no problem with Jesus' calling to believe him in the Eucharist. He had no problem with Jesus' calling to anything, except all these teachings, all these struggles had to do with, I couldn't possibly accept this teaching with regard to sexual morality. When I pointed this out to him, he was like, well, you, tell me where, show me where Jesus prohibits this or that. One of his issues And I know this is personal for a lot of us here who are in this this space. And so I don't mean to, again, point fingers. I don't mean to bring up anything that's painful, but this is a harsh reality of our lives. One of Jesus' teachings, he said, I could never accept. One of the church's teachings I could never possibly accept is Jesus' teaching about you can't get divorced and remarried. I said, okay, well, I understand that. It's very difficult. But if I could show you where Jesus says you cannot divorce and remarry, would you believe it? Because Jesus is God. You have to believe what he says, right? It's like, sure. So I showed him in three places and three different gospels that Jesus says, if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery. His first response was, huh. His second response was, well, I looked up on the internet and there are some people that don't think that's what it means. Okay, meism, My own particular version of Jesus. Where when he challenges what I like or what I want to do, he goes to the side versus when he convicts me in fact i know this man who uh he was the first person in his family to graduate high school he paid his way through college by volunteering uh, joining the air force he paid for his way through medical school by serving in the air force this is a man who's worked hard his entire life he's saved up a ton of money he's invested really really wisely and he says he told me he said father mike every time I hear the Gospels, hear the word of Jesus where he says how hard it is for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I get chills. He says, my blood runs cold and I sank. I ask myself, I ask Jesus, I say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this money? Because I I am convicted every single time. Yes, he, no, if he's an American, he says, I worked hard for my money. But he's a Christian first. Yep, I worked hard for this money. And Jesus says how hard it is for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. He lets himself be convicted. Because if Jesus is God, then he gets to convict me. If Jesus is God, then I'm a Christian first, an American second or third or fourth. You know, C.S. Lewis, talking about this, he said, one of the hardest teachings of Jesus, the one one people find most difficult to follow, he says people right away, you think, especially college, Sorry, I don't mean to pick on you. But like young people, anybody it's like, the teaching's not sexuality. And he's like, yeah, those are tough sometimes. But when we hear Jesus' teachings about mercy, when we hear Jesus' teachings about forgiveness, where he says, whoever's hurt you the most, that's the one person you have to forgive the quickest. When Jesus teaches us the Our Father and says every day, multiple times a day, pray this prayer, God, Father in heaven, do not forgive me if I don't forgive the people who have hurt me. That's what we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm begging God the Father, God, just, just remember, don't forgive me if I don't forgive the people who have hurt me. But if Jesus is God, that's part of his teachings. Now, people said to C.S. Lewis, like, oh yeah, I wonder how you'd feel. I wonder how you would respond if you were one of those, those Poles who were in the concentration camps. I wonder what you would say, or how you would respond if you were standing in front of one of those Nazis. And C.S. Lewis, he says, I also wonder. I wonder very much, I don't know. Because this is the truth for every one of us. Jesus is who he says he is. Because of that, he is the way, the life, and the truth. That means everything he teaches is true, regardless of what our culture says. Even if I can't do it. During World War II, there was a young woman named Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Christian woman from a Christian family. As a teenager, when World War II broke out, she and her family, as Christians, they saved hundreds of Jews by hiding them in, her home, in their homes. At some point, the Gestapo found out about this. They killed her mother. They arrested her father, her sister, and herself sent them off to a place called Ravensbrück, a concentration camp. There, her father was killed. There, her sister and her were stripped naked and marched, paraded in front of all these male soldiers. They were humiliated. Ultimately, her sister Betsy died. At the end of the war, Corrie Ten Boom got out of Ravensbrück and she began preaching a message of mercy, a message of forgiveness all throughout Europe, which was such, such a broken place. And after one of her sermons in this church, she said this young German man walked up the aisle, came towards me after I gave this message about, okay, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus has called us to mercy, we have to forgive those. And this young man walked down the, down the center aisle and she said, the moment I saw his eyes, I recognized him. He was one of the guards in Ravensbrook. In fact, he was one of those guards who seemed to take particular delight in her suffering and her sister's suffering, that her sister Betsy died at the hands of this man. And this man walked to her and he said, Fräulein, I too was at Ravensbrück. And since the war, I have become a Christian. And Jesus Christ has forgiven me my sins. And I've been praying to Jesus that he would give me the chance to meet one of my victims so I could ask her for forgiveness as well. And so here I stand in front of you as your brother in Jesus. Would you forgive me? And Corey Den Boom, she said, in that moment... I knew the truth. In that moment, I knew that that's what Jesus had asked of me. But in that moment, I couldn't. I couldn't forgive him. Again, Matthew 28, verse 17 they worshiped, but they doubted. She said, In that moment, I couldn't. I remember what St. Paul said in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. I couldn't forgive him, but Jesus could. So she said she stretched out her hand and she clasped this young man's hand. She felt this, again, faith is not a feeling, but she felt this overwhelming love for this man. The love of God had been poured out into her heart and she embraced him and she forgave him. This is the last thing. Jesus is who he says he is. He is God, which means that he gets to tell us how to live. He gets to tell us how to walk. He gets to tell us what to do. And there can still be times when we're like, but I don't don't have it in me. I don't know if I can do this. It goes so contrary to what the world is saying. It goes so contrary to what I understand, even know to to be true. In those moments, I just invite all of us to think about John chapter 6. We know, all of us know John chapter 6 where Jesus talks about the Eucharist and his hardest teaching where here are these disciples, hundreds of disciples are walking away from Jesus because he's told them that he's gonna give them his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. If you want to have life, you must eat my flesh to drink my blood and hundreds are leaving. As a result of this, John chapter six says, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. And in that moment, Jesus turns to the 12. He turns to those apostles. He turns to the original boy band and he asks them, he says, he says, do you also want to leave? Here's the deal. I am who I say I am. I am the Lord God. I made that big yellow thing in the sky. Like, I am the only God there is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I just said the truth. Do you also want to leave? And I love this because at that moment, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Master, where are we going to go? He says, we have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Remember, faith is a relationship that even when he did not know how are you going to do this how are you going to feed us i have no idea how you're going to give us your flesh and blood to eat and to give us bring us to eternal life i don't know how you're going to do this but i do know you i don't know how you're going to do this but i do trust you and you are who you say you are and even when i'm weak you are strong Even when I'm lost, you are the truth. Even when I don't understand, you bring light. I've come to believe and I'm convinced that you are God, the God. So with my whole life, I can do nothing else but say yes to the God of truth. Thanks for listening, friends. To hear more content from speakers like this, join us for Seek 24 in St. Louis, January 1st through the 5th. Visit seek.focus.org to learn more.